This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the tragic tale of a noblewoman who refused to be a mistress and ended up a queen. Welcome back, dear listeners. This is the sixth episode of Storical, and I feel like I should have a party or something because I've officially been doing this podcast for half a year, and honestly, it's been even more rewarding and interesting than I could have imagined. So here's to more episodes about the messy lives of historical people. All right, for today's episode, we are talking about one of my favorite subjects of all time, Anne Boleyn. Last month, I did a deep dive on Henry VIII, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, push pause on this, go listen to the episode titled Henry VIII, His Kingdom for a Son. I hope you enjoyed that Shakespeare reference, by the way, because I was very proud of it. Okay, so now that you've got that sorted, back to Anne. A quick little funny story before we begin, though. I've been sending out a monthly newsletter with links to this podcast, as well as blog posts I've written on different historical figures. And if you're not on there, you can email me or sign up on immortalperfumes.com if you scroll to the bottom of the page. Anyway, so last month, the main post was the Henry VIII podcast episode, but I got all cute about it and I titled the email Tudor Tuesday with little crown emojis. And under the podcast, I put a link to an Anne Boleyn blog post that I wrote last year. Listeners. More people clicked on Anne than Henry, Henry, and I seriously cackled at the poetic justice of it all. It absolutely made my day. So I'm very pleased to be here today and bring the people what they want, Anne Boleyn. So why am I such a fangirl for Anne, you may be wondering. Well, a couple of things. My nickname from one of my best friends is literally Queen Anne Boleyn, which is a long story and I won't get into it, but the love runs deep. And like I mentioned in the last episode, when I was in school, there are a lot of misconceptions about Tudor history. First, American public schools barely even cover it. And when they do, Anne is just painted as this evil homewrecker who got what was coming to her. I do not like it when women are portrayed this way. But I didn't really know much about her until I saw the Tudors when it came out in 2007. And my dear listeners, that was what did it for me. After watching Natalie Dormer just slay all day as Queen Anne, I actively sought out everything I could find out about her. Now, as we learned in Henry's episode, he was a bit of a moody, petulant child. After being passionately in love with this woman for 10 years, he had her killed on trumped-up charges of adultery and witchcraft. After she died, he did what history often does— tried to erase the witch in every way possible. Because of this, we don't really have a lot of historical documentation about her inner thoughts and feelings, and everything we know about her is from other sources, many of which were hostile and hated her. So within that context, I will try to paint for you the most accurate portrait of this fiery queen, the mother to none other than Queen Elizabeth I. Chapter 1. Those Scheming Bolins. When it comes to Anne Boleyn, unless you're an obsessive and have read a lot on the Tudors, then some things you've probably heard are that she was a commoner, 
She had six fingers on one hand, and she was the second wife of Henry VIII. Spoiler alert, only one of those is true. Anne Boleyn was born circa July 1501. There are also theories she was born in 1506, but that timeline doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of her age when she was at court. So we're sticking with the popular date of July 1501. The reason we don't actually know is because back then, record keeping was an afterthought at best. And if you were a girl, you weren't deemed important enough to have your birth recorded. If that makes you mad, don't tear your hair out yet because you won't have any left by the end of this episode. Anne was the middle child of Thomas and Elizabeth Bullen. She had an older sister named Mary and a younger brother named George. And I'll just tell you right now, in this tale, only one of them makes it out alive. Now, in the Bullen marriage, it was Elizabeth that brought the noble pedigree. She was a member of the supremely wealthy and influential Howard family. Her father was the second Duke of Norfolk, and she could trace her lineage back to King John, who was son to Eleanor of Aquitaine, and the king who signed the Magna Carta into law. Elizabeth's brother, Thomas Howard, I'm sorry, just to warn you, there are roughly 9,000 Thomases, Catherines, Henrys, and Elizabeth in this episode, so just beware. Thomas Howard was the third Duke of Norfolk and a key player for you to remember. Now, Elizabeth's family had been all in for the House of York during the War of the Roses. Lucky for them, when Henry Tudor beat Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field, the newly styled King Henry VII brought the Howard family into his favor. Elizabeth Boleyn became a lady-in-waiting to Elizabeth of York, Henry VIII's mother. She also became a lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon early in her marriage to Henry VIII. All right, so that's Anne's mom, born rich, has titles. It's her dad, Thomas Boleyn's family, that drove Anne's critics to belittle her ancestry. Thomas Boleyn's grandfather was a merchant, a hatter to be exact. And let me tell you, I love any opportunity to say the word hatter. Anyway, after being a hatter, he went on to become Lord Mayor of London and was then knighted by Henry VII. He also did well enough that he was able to buy Hever Castle, Anne's ancestral home. Thomas's father was Sir William Boleyn, who was the Sheriff of Kent, which gives me Robin Hood vibes, and his mother Margaret was a descendant of Earls. So people are always like, ah, Anne's family, they were just lowly merchants, but not really. There were some dukes and knights in there, so I mean, she wasn't born royal, but she was pretty up there. Anyway, back to Thomas. To call Thomas Boleyn ambitious was an understatement. It's often said that the Earl of Surrey, Elizabeth's father, who later became a duke, had a hand in advancing Thomas's career. That's probably true to a certain extent, but Thomas was one, already at court, and two, was an extremely well-educated man who was fluent in French and a big fan of the rock star of humanism, Erasmus, which meant he was cultured and being cultured was a big deal to the English court as it was trying to establish itself as a grand center for learning to its rivals, France and Spain. So he probably had a leg up thanks to some well-placed connections, but he was also a generally smart man with good court skills. Thomas got his start in the court of Henry VII and had the distinction of getting to escort Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's older sister and the grandmother to Mary Queen of Scots, to Scotland for her marriage to James VI of Scotland. Thomas was a serious opportunist, and this ambitious nature ingratiated him to Henry VIII and yielded several important diplomatic positions. 
His first huge appointment was as ambassador to the Low Countries, a position that got him an audience with the Archduchess Margaret of Austria. Now, Margaret was, behind Isabella of Castile, the most powerful woman in Europe. She was the governor of the Low Countries and the guardian and regent for Charles V. You know, the Holy Roman Emperor and nephew of Catherine of Aragon. As Charles V's guardian, Margaret of Austria ran something of an illustrious royal finishing school. Nobles from all over Europe vied to get Margaret to take their kids into her care. But it was her friendship with the ambassador from England that drove Margaret to take into her care his younger daughter, Anne Boleyn. So, dear listeners, this is where we set our scene. With an aristocratic mother and a fiercely ambitious father, Anne Boleyn, second-born daughter, was given access to one of the grandest, most learned courts in Europe. Chapter 2, A French Education. All right, so Anne is the younger sister and is getting shipped off to Margaret of Austria to complete her education. You may be thinking, well, that's odd. Wouldn't her sister Mary, the elder sister, be the first choice to go abroad? Historians still debate which sister was older because, remember, Women were important back then, so no one bothered to write down their birthdays unless they were a princess, and even then, good luck. But the consensus is that Mary was older. And this discrepancy, having Anne go serve in a royal court while leaving her her elder sister behind at home, is one of the first instances you have of the little seedlings of discord between the sisters. Many speculate that this was part of crafty little Thomas Boleyn's plan. Anne was his favorite child, and she was the one that had the brains, so send her to be a good representative and bring favor on the family. So off Anne went to the Low Countries to learn from Margaret of Austria. Now, I had to look this up because I had no idea what the Low Countries were. I thought it was some distant part of England, but apparently some still refer to the region as as such, and back in Anne's time, the Low Countries were the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Belgium. In 1513, Anne arrived in Margaret's palace, Mechelen, to be educated and to serve the Archduchess as maid of honor. Such a placement was extremely difficult to get at such a young age, and when Margaret wrote to Thomas Boleyn saying, I find her so bright and so pleasant for her young age that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. It is quite evident how smart and utterly remarkable Anne was. One of the first orders of business after Anne arrived was to begin lessons in French. She had a private French tutor, and soon the girl would prove fluent. Anne excelled in her studies and in the arts. She was an accomplished dancer, could sing well, and play instruments such as the lute and the virginal. In addition to needlework and just a general ability to conduct oneself with chastity and poise, these were really all the things that a girl of noble birth needed to know during tutor times. And funny enough, King Henry visited the Archduchess during the time that Anne was made of honor in her court. After military exploits with Margaret's father, the Emperor Maximilian, Henry and his entourage visited the towns of Lille and Ternay and had one of their merry little jousting festivals. As a native of England who could speak fluent French, it's highly likely that Anne was summoned as an interpreter, and she must have met the king at this point, but there are no indications that he noticed her during the trip. However, she must have left some sort of impression because less than a year later, Anne was summoned from the court of the Archduchess to accompany the king's sister, Mary Tudor, on her voyage to become Queen of France. This time, her older sister Mary would accompany her. 
The Boleyn sisters both waited on Mary Tudor in her brief tenure as Queen of France. Mary Tudor had been married off to Louis XII of France, who was known as Louis the Decrepit because at age 52, for Tudor times, that was positively ancient. Mary Tudor was 18 and in love with Charles Brandon, one of King Henry's favorites. After a mere three months on the French throne, Louis died, supposedly from too much exertion in the bedchamber. Against her brother, Henry VIII's expressed wishes, he knew that Mary was in love with Charles Brandon, yet, for reasons unknown, had Brandon be her chaperone back to England. She married Brandon in secret and was then sent with her ladies back to England. All of her ladies except Anne. Anne was given a placement with the new Queen Claude, who was married to Francis I, King Henry's favorite frenemy, until his death. Now, in the exceptionally short time Mary Boleyn was in France, she gained quite the reputation, shall we say. Francis himself called Mary Boleyn his English mare, and she was known as the great whore. Which poor Mary, she was by all accounts super pretty, not the smartest, but in the French court you were expected to be super flirtatious and deal with all these lascivious dudes coming onto you, but then you'd get judged if you reciprocated. So I feel bad for poor Mary. Anyway, back to Anne. Anne was extremely intelligent and determined to not be used or underestimated as her sister was. Queen Claude was also somewhat reclusive and extremely pious, so Anne was more sheltered from the overt sexuality of the French court. She definitely learned how to play the game of courtly love, but she kept her wits about her and didn't succumb to temptation in the same way her sister had. Anne spent seven years in France. She could speak the language perfectly, was extremely fashionable, any style flourishes that she would incorporate, the other girls at court would immediately try to emulate, and she was a very accomplished dancer. But none of that holds a candle to some of the people she surrounded herself with in France. First, there was a gentleman that you may have heard of, one Leonardo da Vinci. He had been invited to court to retire because Francis was super into art and wanted to be the main artistic patron of Europe, which absolutely galled Henry VIII. It's not known the extent to which Anne may have known da Vinci, but they absolutely would have met. Second, there was Francis's sister, Marguerite de Navarre. Marguerite had a salon in which she encouraged philosophical and religious discourse. She was a patron of arts and, most scandalously, a member of the nobility who was interested in church reform and humanism. It is not known how much interaction the two had, Marguerite would later snub Anne Boleyn when she became queen, but it's clear that these intellectual ideals would have had a huge impact on Anne's later life. People said of Anne that she was more French than a French woman born. While she wasn't as pretty as her sister, this je ne sais quoi is what made her so alluring. In 1522, Anne was recalled to England to marry her cousin to reclaim ancestral titles, but instead she found herself the darling of a lecherous court. Chapter three, stricken with the dart of love. Ladies, let's all thank our lucky stars that we were not born during Anne's time because you were basically your father's property until you went to go live with your husband and then you get to be his property. What a fun deal. Such was the plight of Anne. As you may recall, her scheming father, Thomas Boleyn, he was in the midst of a dispute over lands and the title of Earl of Ormond with relatives in Ireland. Thomas had the backing of King Henry for his claim, but the other claimant, Piers Butler, 
who had been managing the lands in Thomas's absence, wanted the case tried in front of Irish lords. No one wanted to anger Ireland and start even more strife, so a plan was hatched to marry Anne to James Butler, son of Piers. Now, here's a name you may remember from last month's Henry VIII episode, Cardinal Wolsey. James Butler was actually being brought up in Wolsey's household, and Wolsey himself was tasked with negotiating this marriage with input from the king. So again, in the aftermath of Anne's death, her enemies smeared her and called her common. But I mean, if the king, who at this point didn't actually know her, was getting involved in her marriage arrangements, I'd say she was pretty important. Dear listeners, as you probably guessed, the marriage negotiations fell apart. Anne did not marry James Butler. She had been recalled from the majesty of the French court to marry an Irish lord, but now she was just bored and bumming around at Hever Castle. Which, side note, I recently liked the Hever Castle page on Facebook, and they post lots of pictures of their gardens and moss-covered castle, and hey, it wasn't so bad, but I digress. All this time that Anne had been gone, quite a lot had been going on in Mary Boleyn's life. First, she got married to a young courtier, and favorite of Henry VIII named William Carey, which meant she got the unfortunate name Mary Carey. I'd say poor Mary, but honestly, she probably came out on top once everyone's head started to roll. Shortly after her marriage to Carey, Mary became mistress to King Henry, which, as you may recall from the last episode, was kind of a big deal. Henry didn't take many mistresses. He was much more of a serial monogamist, probably because he was so religious. Mary was only one of two confirmed mistresses that he had in his entire life, which is so crazy to me because the popular image of him was the sex-crazed king. Mary's quote-unquote fling with the king lasted for about four years. The start and end dates aren't known, but Henry seems to have moved on once Mary was pregnant with her second child, Henry Carey, who was born in 1526. Okay, let's back up for a second. That rabbit hole of Mary Boleyn's life and time with the king is important for what transpired later in The King's Great Matter. But now, let's look at Anne Boleyn's big splash at her introduction to English court. Anne made her grand entrance at Henry VIII's court in such a spectacular yet eerie and foreshadowing manner that I honestly do not understand how any of this is real and not just fanciful tales from some Hollywood scriptwriter. Let me set the scene for you. Henry VIII loved himself a good mask. Masks were these plays that members of the court would put on, and he, of course, would usually give himself the starring role, and there were these over-the-top performances that usually had a moral theme and featured noble men going after women. Henry was super into courtly love, which I mentioned earlier was this strange over-the-top flirtation. Henry was a person who liked the chase, so it's easy to see why it would appeal to him. In 1522, he staged one of these masks, and it was called the Chateau Vert. Now, prepare yourself for this because it's arguably the most King Henry thing ever. There were eight noble women participating. They represented the virtues considered perfect in a mistress, and these were beauty, kindness, bounty, constancy, perseverance, pity, honor, and mercy. Mary Boleyn was kindness, and Anne Boleyn was, you guessed it, perseverance. I swear to God, you can't make this stuff up. They built a legit prop castle that had three towers and was decked out in green tinfoil. These ladies were all stationed at the top of each tower. 
Below them in the dungeons of this wooden castle, which they constructed at Wolsey's palace at Whitehall, were women who represented all the bad traits a good Tudor woman would never have, including disdain, jealousy, unkindness, danger, scorn, strangeness. They probably would have had me play that one. Then my personal favorite, malbouche, which meant sharp tongue. Because they were subtle, they had all the noble women of good virtue dressed in white gowns with Venetian gold headpieces and all the bad ladies they had dressed up as Indian women. (sighs) Okay, so now you have all these chivalrous men ready to storm the castle and save the good girls on the tower. The men were nobleness, youth, loyalty, liberty, pleasure, attendance, gentleness, and amorousness. Of course, Henry was the one that led the attack on the castle, and dear listeners, the whole affair literally ended up in a food fight in which they all threw dates and oranges at each other, because that's how they had fun before we had electricity, I guess. The TV show The Tudors actually staged this scene, and they really did a brilliant job. There's just one issue. Most media depictions of the Chateau Vert have Anne Boleyn catching Henry's eye and their affair starting soon after. It's actually believed that Henry probably didn't notice Anne here and was instead interested in Mary Boleyn. It was 1522, so the timing makes sense. Anne was now at court as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine of Aragon, as was her sister Mary. The sisters weren't super close. In fact, Anne was actually really close with her mother, which is kind of refreshing to hear. I feel like most of the time you hear about the moms during this era being either distant, dead, or conniving. So it's nice that she got on with her mom. Now, the only way to describe it, and pretty much every source uses the exact same phrase, but Anne made a big splash at court. England at this time was not cosmopolitan the way the French and Spanish courts were. They were much more quaint and rough and tumble. So when you have a woman show up who speaks fluent French, wears stunning, trendy gowns, sumptuous fabrics, and alluring colors, who can also sing and dance, and she's funny and smart, Good Lord, Anne brought all the boys to the yard, which I especially love because all accounts say she was pretty, but not conventionally pretty. At the time, the ideal of beauty was fair with blonde hair and blue eyes. Anne had black eyes and hair and olive skin. Just as in France, the ladies of court rushed to copy her style. Soon, the French hood, that elaborate headpiece you see in her most famous portrait, became all the rage over the more traditional gable hood favored by Queen Catherine. She also popularized long sleeves and frequently wore sumptuous black fabrics at a time when the color wasn't favored, which black clothing is my uniform, so I feel her spiritually. Anne was the quintessential cool girl at court. She had several suitors, and while it's not known exactly when Henry VIII first took notice of Anne, by 1526, he was under her spell. Chapter four, a game of chase. While Henry was still preoccupied with his dalliance with Mary Boleyn, Anne was fully enjoying her status as lady-in-waiting to Catherine. She was the center of male attention at the court. And remember, while Henry and Anne had at minimum met several times and he knew her thanks to her father's position, she hadn't yet taken over his world. So at this time, she was moving freely about court, doing her own thing and hoping to find love with a suitable match. And she found that in Henry Percy, the son of the Earl of Northumberland. Percy was a page in Cardinal Wolsey's household, actually at the same time as James Butler, her cousin she was supposed to marry. 
Anne had caught the eye of several suitors, but Percy was head over heels in love with her and the only serious prospect that Anne actually loved. The two of them got engaged in secret, and let me tell you, the tutors were kind of psychotic about these betrothals. A betrothal, even one just spoken, never actually followed through, basically counted as law. Henry later used this argument to get rid of several wives. Henry Percy's father was powerful, and as such, he expected an advantageous match for his son. When he found out about the engagement, he threatened to disinherit his son if he married Anne instead of the wife that had already been chosen for him. Cardinal Wolsey was livid when he found out and publicly chastised Percy and then took the matter to the king. When Henry VIII was notified, he flipped his lid. All nobles, especially those with super important positions, such as the Earl of Northumberland, they had to get royal approval before they could marry. Whether Henry was mad that he hadn't been consulted or he was already in love with Anne is up for debate. In most of the dramatizations told from Anne's point of view, Henry himself had a hand in breaking the pair up so that he could court her himself. Again, though, it's all speculation. They weren't the greatest record keepers back then, and most of the primary sources and letters written by Anne were destroyed because to call Henry moody was an understatement. Heartbroken, humiliated, and the subject of the king's wrath, Anne was sent home to Hever Castle. There's debate on how long she was there, but it could have been upward of a year which for a cosmopolitan lady like Anne must have been so boring. It also gave her time to stew. She was heartbroken over the loss of Percy, but also a bit irritated that he hadn't fought harder for her. But Wolsey was the one she directed her anger at, and she would not forget the hand he played in her sadness. After things died down, Anne resumed her position as one of Catherine of Aragon's ladies-in-waiting, and when she returned, she found herself in the attentions of Thomas Wyatt, a celebrated poet, and her childhood friend. Wyatt was pretty much obsessed with Anne, even though he was already married. He took the courtly love thing to the extreme and essentially harassed her constantly, trying to get her to sleep with him. Again, all of this is speculation because we have no idea of when exactly Henry fell for Anne, but it was around this time that he started having feelings for her, and it drove him crazy that this poet was going after her too. Henry started showing her attention, and honestly, my guess is she was like, wait, what is happening? You just got with my sister. You may even be the father to her kids, and also you're married, and I'm your wife's lady-in-waiting. You said I couldn't marry the man I was in love with. What is happening? That's my Anne impression, and I stick by it. So again, with this courtly love BS, Thomas Wyatt stole a jewel necklace from Anne that had fallen out of her pocket or something like that. And she was like, hey, that's my necklace. Can you give it back? And I imagine that he just ran off giggling because he wouldn't give it back and was showing it around court and basically acting like a middle schooler and saying that they were involved. As if this wasn't bad enough, then Henry stole a ring from her and started wearing it on his pinky. This poor woman, because she was a woman by this point, like between 23 and 26, has these grown men stealing her stuff and then taking that to mean that they're in love and involved. And one of these men is the literal king of England. People are always agonizing over whether or not Anne actually loved Henry because we all, and I include myself here, want this epic love story. But when you really sit down and think about it, even if she did end up loving him eventually, she really didn't have a choice in the matter. She can't turn down the king. I digress. 
One day, Wyatt was playing cards or billiards or some super dude type game with the king because apparently they were friends. And Henry starts purposely showing off this ring to Wyatt like, oh, hey, look, your woman likes me. What are you going to do about it? I will tell you what Wyatt is going to do about it. He took out the necklace and made some ill-advised smart aleck response. And the king got so pissed off, he stormed out of the room to find Anne. And she had to calm him down and tell him that this delusional poet stole her necklace. And again, what is going on with these guys? Much is made over the fact that Anne refused to be Henry VIII's mistress. She gets accused of being conniving along with her dad and of being super ambitious for wanting the crown. Here's the thing, though. There was no reason for her to think at this point, when things are getting started, that she could conceivably be queen. No king of England has ever divorced before. From everything that she's seen, if she becomes a mistress, she will end up like her sister and get married off and discarded. So while she may have later started to exploit opportunities as they presented themselves, I really think she was probably at least a little freaked out by Henry's attentions early on. She very wisely excused herself to recharge back in Hever and get away from some of this pressure. Although there are those who believe she did this on purpose to be coy and really get the king thinking about her. And whatever her desires and motives, I mentioned this in the last episode, king of our hearts, king of subtlety, Henry VIII sent her a series of four golden brooches. The first was a Venus and Cupid, the second, a woman holding a man's heart, the third, a man lying in a woman's lap, and the fourth, a woman holding a crown. Then he starts writing her all these intense love letters. And she was a baller because she didn't even respond to some of them. But this man, who had everything done for him, actually sat down and took the time to write to this woman, who was at least 10 years younger than him, about all of his feelings. Anyway, to back up for just a second, Henry had stopped sleeping with Catherine in 1524. She last got pregnant in 1518. Henry knew he was not getting a male heir from her, and now he was actively trying to figure out how he could get out of the marriage. He tried raising up his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, but Henry VIII wanted the legitimacy of a born-in-wedlock heir. An annulment was his only way out. In 1527, he sent a letter to Rome asking for a dispensation so that he could get his marriage to Catherine annulled on account of her being married to his older brother, Arthur, before he died. Around this time, he asked Anne Boleyn to marry him. She said yes, and let me tell you how she went about saying yes. Again, this weird courtly love thing they were all obsessed with. She sent him a jewel in the shape of a golden ship. The ship had a diamond and also a lone maiden on board. Henry ate that up. And if you're confused about how a jewel of a ship can be a yes to a marriage proposal, well, let me explain. Anne was the maiden, obviously, and Henry was the ship. He would give her safe passage on this perilous journey. The diamond further symbolized her heart, hard and steadfast. Unfortunately for the pair, the seas ahead were anything but smooth, and they would remain in limbo for six more long years. Chapter 5. A Reformation and a Coronation As you can imagine, Henry VIII was used to getting his way. Dispensations and annulments were not uncommon for royalty. What was uncommon was that Catherine had family members in high places. 
No one wanted to anger her nephew, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Anne agreed to be Henry's wife, and he asked her to be his wife because they honestly thought the Pope would go along with it and the king's great matter would be settled within a few months. That's not quite what happened. As you may recall, Wolsey was the guy. He basically ran the kingdom for Henry. Even though Wolsey himself came from a working class background, he looked down on Anne Boleyn's family and even called her the Night Crow, which I kind of love. A nickname like that would give me power. Now, in 1527, when Henry originally sent the letter to Rome requesting the papal dispensation and annulment, he hadn't yet told people he was interested in marrying Anne. Wolsey himself was trying to arrange for the king to marry a French princess. Wolsey didn't realize how precarious his position was. If he couldn't get Henry the annulment he desired, here's this woman Wolsey had scorned whispering to the king. Anne had long been sympathetic to the reform cause ever since her girlhood education in the court of King Francis. She was a staunch believer that common people should be allowed to read and study the Bible in English, and she openly debated with Henry about many of the problems in the Catholic Church, such as the practice of indulgences. She also didn't miss opportunities to point out how richly Wolsey was living in his many palaces with fine things and clothes. Anne even gave the king a banned book by William Tyndale called The Obedience of a Christian Man, and that piqued his interest in religion without the need for the direction of the papacy. This book kind of set the wheels in motion in Henry's mind for how he was going to lay the groundwork for the future Church of England with himself as the supreme leader. Henry VIII was increasingly growing irritated with Wolsey's inability to secure for him his annulment. After two years of failure, the king confiscated Wolsey's lands and palaces and arranged to have Wolsey executed. But lucky for Wolsey, he died naturally on his way back to see the king. Anne was able to convince the king to appoint her family's chaplain, Thomas Cranmer, who was sympathetic to Anne's reform religion and obviously to her. And he, she had Henry appoint him the Archbishop of Canterbury, who ruled in the church's stead that Henry's marriage to Catherine was in fact unlawful and he could proceed in his marriage to Anne. She also had a hand in bringing Thomas Cromwell, who used to work for Wolsey, into the king's favor, and Cromwell was soon appointed to the king's privy council and working with Cramer helped engineer the annulment from Catherine. I'm not going to get into the whole long story of all the problems that arose, but Henry and Anne were unable to realize their dream of getting married until 1533. In that time, Anne was extremely moody, to put it lightly. She was still refusing to sleep with the king and had something of her own shadow court. Everyone knew that Anne had the power and Catherine's star was fizzling, so the actual queen of England was increasingly isolated while courtiers paid court to Anne, hoping to gain her favor. Henry continued to spend lavishly on her, keeping her in the rich fabrics and jewels of which she had grown accustomed. Out of all of his wives, he spent the most on jewels for Anne, and unfortunately, pretty much none of them have survived, although some believe that some of the jewels went to her daughter Elizabeth, and there's also speculation that the pearls from her famous bee pearl drop necklace are in the crown of the current Queen Elizabeth, which is pretty cool. One major issue, however, was that Henry still had to live with Catherine, and Catherine still had to reside over official court functions. So all the big pageants, as well as Christmas festivities, would happen with Catherine at the helm, 
And then there would be banquets and extra activities with Anne afterward. This absolutely grated Anne, and she had a bit of a violent temper and would take it out on Henry, who, as you may have guessed, also had a violent temper. The two of them would have these intense rows and then passionately make up. This was how their relationship worked. Things finally hit a breaking point in the winter of 1532. Henry was just done. He had offered Catherine the chance to volunteer herself to go to a nunnery, but Catherine, daughter of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, aunt to the Holy Roman Emperor, was a queen through and through, and she refused. She also refused to stop calling herself the queen. Henry finally got sick of it and sent her from court, separating her from her one surviving child, Mary, and sending her to increasingly horrible castles with terrible living conditions and far away from court. Anne journeyed with Henry to Calais in an attempt to get King Francis to support their marriage. While there, she finally gave in and allowed Henry to sleep with her, which is so strange to me. I mean, I guess she could see that the crown was in sight, but it's a little odd to me that she would go for it after waiting so long. They then had a secret wedding in January of 1533 to ensure that if she got pregnant, it would absolutely be born in wedlock. Mind you, this is before they got official word that their marriage could proceed. And also, intense secret courtships and secret weddings seemed to be what got King Henry off because it was definitely a pattern for him. Finally secure in her position, Anne could finally rule the court out in the open. By February of 1533, she was dropping hints that she was pregnant, telling everyone who would listen that she just had the strangest craving for apples. Whatever could that mean? In April of 1533, on Good Friday, no less, Cranmer finally was able to come to the king with the news they had so long desired. His marriage to Catherine was null, his marriage to Anne was good, and she now had all the rights and honors of the queen. Anne attended Easter Mass as queen. Henry wanted Anne to have a majestic coronation, so planning began, and Anne was formally crowned queen, heavily pregnant, I might add, in June of 1533. Catherine was formally stripped of her title of queen and demoted to Dowager Princess of Wales, her title after Arthur had died, but before she had married Henry. Anne's coronation lasted four days and included a flotilla in which she got her own personal barge to float down the River Thames to the Tower of London, which... Ah, foreshadowing. On her actual coronation day, she received the crown of St. Edward and the rod and scepter in Westminster Abbey. The wine flowed free and there were celebrations throughout the city, but Anne's reception by the people was lukewarm at best. There are a lot of sources, mostly written after the fact by her enemies, that people shouted insults at her or didn't bow or didn't lift their hats. These are probably not true. Because, as we've learned, Henry didn't mind killing people when they didn't suit his agenda, so I find it highly unlikely that common people, let alone courtiers, would be so bold. It's true that Catherine was a very popular queen. They had been married for 24 years. This was not some random thing where Henry was young and decided he didn't want to be married. A whole generation of English people grew up with Catherine and knew her to be a good, kind, and charitable to the poor. People thought of Anne as a temptress and seductress who led the king astray, which is super unfair to Anne. Again, I'm speculating, but when things first began, there was no way she even hoped she would get a crown out of this. She wanted to stay alive and have favor with the king without ruining her reputation so she could one day get an advantageous marriage. People love to blame the woman, but this was all Henry. 
I'm not saying that she and her family, once realizing they had an opportunity, didn't immediately start playing the game and plotting. I'm just saying this was probably not some malevolent plan she concocted when she was, you know, 24 and had her heart broken. Sorry, I get super defensive of Anne. That was a long digression. Now that she was queen, she was determined to follow in the footsteps of the French court she had grown up in and foster the arts and learning. In another shadow of irony, Anne decided on her motto as queen, the most happy. Chapter six, the doomed queen. The summer of her coronation, Anne was indeed the most happy. Her husband doted on her and she went into her confinement. She was untouchable. Side note, back in the day when you were pregnant, they would basically make you lie in bed in a dark room and you were not allowed to do literally anything for a few weeks before the birth. Royal announcements had already been drafted to foreign kings, such as Francis, and jousts, cannons, and general festivities were planned. The king himself was jubilant at the prospect of his long-awaited heir. Literally every person, including royal astrologers, thought that Anne was pregnant with a boy. She had made some very specific promises to Henry, so she had a lot riding on this. On September 7th, 1533, Anne gave birth to Princess Elizabeth, as in Elizabeth I as in one of the greatest queens to ever live, as in Kate Blanchett and her cheekbones. I will have to do a whole episode on just Elizabeth's childhood because, good Lord, if you thought her mother and father's lives were dramatic, you would not believe the fresh hell that Henry put Elizabeth to. Contrary to popular myth, Anne loved Elizabeth, visited her often, and was heartbroken that she couldn't stay with Elizabeth, but at the time, royal children were sent away within their first year of life to have their own households. Henry was profoundly disappointed. Those announcements for the monarchs of Europe hastily had extra S's added to them to write princess instead of prince. But here's the thing. Though he was disappointed, the fact that Anne had a healthy baby on her first try meant that she could have more children, and so Henry didn't completely turn on her just yet. As queen, Anne was devoted to spreading church reform. It's not clear if she was a Protestant or if she just wanted changes made to the Catholic faith, but she was an early champion of having the Bible translated to English. She was also dedicated to giving money to the poor and improving education. This wound up being a bit of a problem. You see, Henry really enjoyed having an educated mistress with whom he could banter, but as a wife, he wanted her to be silent, demure, and to provide him with many sons. But that's not who Anne was. Unlike Catherine, she didn't turn a blind eye to his infidelities. She reacted with rage and tears and had no problem tearing the king a new one. This had always been how the relationship worked. But as a married couple, it was no longer fun. It was no longer games. They did have periods of calm, stable affection, but after Elizabeth's birth, things had cooled considerably. Now, it's important to note here that while all of this is going on, Catherine was still alive and still calling herself queen. And Princess Mary, who had been downgraded to Lady Mary, was a teenager and a bit of a pistol. She antagonized her father and had nothing but venom for her new stepmother, which Anne was not very nice to Mary, so it checks out. I bring all this up because Henry was beginning to tire of Anne's moods and political interference and wanted a way out. But he couldn't outright get rid of her without being forced to go back to Catherine. Anne had several miscarriages, one or two of whom were definitely boys. Henry began to think that he was cursed and being punished by God, which while Henry had basically destroyed the old church in England, he was still a Catholic at heart. He wanted it both ways, though. He wanted to be a good Catholic, but not have to answer to the Pope. 
he was really, really great at rationalizing and believing the alternate realities he created. Which again, speculation on my part, but come on, it's pretty obvious. In 1535, things had calmed and she found herself pregnant again. They were a happy couple once again and traveled on a progress together. Now, Henry had been up to some pretty terrible things along with his new Lord Chamberlain, Thomas Cromwell. People who didn't take an oath of allegiance to Anne were executed, all political adversaries also executed, and they had begun dissolving the abbeys and the monasteries with all the funds going to the crown. Anne was against this, and she wanted the money to go to charities dealing in education. Nevertheless, the English people blamed her for Henry's increasingly tyrannical ways, and she was known as the king's whore. Which, I hear that, and I'm sad for her, but also angry because nothing has changed, but that's a rabbit hole I'm not going to go into right now. In January of 1536, Catherine of Aragon died. She wrote the king a lovely note telling him how much she still loved him and signed it Catherine the Queen. The embalming process revealed that her heart was black, which historians now believe signified cancer, but of course back then people believed that either Anne or the king had poisoned her. The next day, Anne and Henry wore yellow, which they said was in deference to the mourning colors of Spain, but many accused them of celebrating the old queen's death. But unfortunately for Anne, Catherine's death meant that if Henry wanted to get rid of her, he could choose anyone he wanted and no longer had the fear that he'd have to go back to his wife. There's an enormous amount of pressure riding on her pregnancy. Around this time, Henry also began to court Jane Seymour, one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting. History has her as this meek little thing who truly loved the king, but apparently she was actually being coached using the Anne Boleyn playbook of playing hard to get. Anne apparently walked in on Jane sitting on Henry's lap, which understandably flew Anne into a rage. Another time, Henry gave Jane a locket, and in Anne's presence, Jane made a show of opening and closing the locket. So Anne ripped it from her neck so hard that it made Anne's fingers bleed and left marks on Jane's neck. Then later that same month, Henry had an accident during a joust and was knocked unconscious for two hours. Anne had many enemies at court, and Henry was really the only one protecting her, which is saying something since he was trying to get rid of her behind the scenes. But fearing the king was dead, she grew so worried that within five days, she miscarried a boy, what would have been her savior. And the creepiest part, Anne's miscarriage occurred on the day of Catherine's funeral. You can't make this stuff up, you guys. Now, it's true that Henry was very upset about this miscarriage, but their shared grief actually drew them closer together. He felt sorry for her and still thought they would have a son together. Recently, more research is coming out pointing to Thomas Cromwell, her former ally, as being the chief architect of her demise. Remember what I said about her disagreement over the funds collected from the monasteries and abbeys? Well, she had her chaplains preach against this publicly, and Cromwell did not want her in his way. Jane Seymour's family, in addition to Cromwell and Anne's many enemies at court, started whispering about her. Henry, who was infatuated with Jane and irritated that he still didn't have his male heir, was fairly easy to sway, and once people started whispering about alleged affairs and witchcraft, the idea took root, and once again, Henry convinced himself of it. Cromwell conducted an investigation and determined that Queen Anne Boleyn had committed treason against the king by plotting his death and having adulterous affairs with five men, one of whom was her brother. Mark Smeaton was the only one among them not of noble birth. He was a musician who often played for the queen. Noblemen could not be tortured, but common people could. 
Under torture, he confessed to sleeping with the queen, but all the rest of the accused went to the axe, proclaiming their innocence. Anne was arrested and sent to the Tower of London, the same place she had stayed during her coronation. She was allowed to argue her case, but it was already a foregone conclusion. Her trial was presided over by her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, with both Thomas Boleyn and Henry Percy also in attendance. They all judged her guilty, and she was sentenced to die either by burning or the axe at the king's pleasure. Henry paid for an expert swordsman from France. Some say this was a mercy because the sword was much more humane than the axe. Others think this was pettiness on the part of Henry since he knew how much Anne loved all things French. Like with everything in the story, I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. At her execution, Anne was the picture of calm and was regally dressed in the color of martyrs. She spoke nothing but kindness about the king, probably in, a, in an attempt to save Elizabeth and keep Elizabeth in his good graces. No funeral had been planned for her, and there wasn't even a coffin. Her ladies had to scrounge together a box they found, and it barely fit the body and head. Henry was not present for her execution. In fact, he was really great at avoiding people before he had them arrested and murdered for his own political reasons. Probably that Catholic guilt. That's what I like to believe. But yeah, Henry was with Jane Seymour during Anne's execution because he was the literal worst. And just for fun, Cromwell was executed for treason four years later, and Henry's the rest of Henry's life was basically miserable. So don't worry, people got what was coming to them at least. Now, most of the sources I just presented you with are secondhand, some having been written years after Anne's death. And the reason for this was that after her death, Henry tried to have her erased from history. A few of her letters survive, but they are locked up at the Vatican of all places. She had many enemies who wrote malicious and false accounts about her. You've probably heard that she had six fingers and all these moles, which were considered the mark of a witch at the time. Guys, she had an extra nail and maybe had some beauty marks at a time when that was not yet fashionable. If any of that were true, would Henry, Mr. Lover of Everything Beautiful, have been so obsessed with her? Probably not. As far as the love between them, Henry was a serial monogamist who loved the chase. Anne was the most challenging woman he'd ever known, and personally, I think she was the great love of his life. He was never the same after her death. In fact, that's when he started growing more tyrannical, corpulent, and moody. Anne probably grew to love him because how can you not get swept up when someone so majestic and powerful is paying you favor and telling you you're the greatest, most beautiful woman who's ever lived? But at the start, I think she was trying to figure out how to save her reputation without insulting the king. It was only later that the opportunity to be queen presented itself as a reality. Anne Boleyn met her end on May 19th, 1536. Coincidentally, the same date as the wedding of the current Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Chapter 7, The Queen's Renaissance. Anne's interests and temperament were markedly ahead of her time. She was loud and opinionated, which was not a virtue in Tudor England. However, with the passage of almost 500 years, history has taken a closer look at the doomed queen, and Anne has been experiencing something of a revival of interest. Over the years, she's been the great whore, the Protestant martyr, and a feminist icon. We will never know who the real Anne was because there's so little that survives of her. The enigma that is Anne Boleyn survives because her story is the stuff of legend, which was ultimately passed on to her daughter, one of the greatest monarchs of all time. So with all that said, let's talk about Anne Boleyn mania, 
because that's what her fandom is. What's really great about the sheer volume of literature, nonfiction, film, and television that cover Anne is that while you think you'd get tired of reading about her, there is so much of it out there that it's easy to find things that are very different in tone and personality, and I found that each piece gave me a new layer. Starting with nonfiction, there are two titles I relied on to research this episode. Those were The Lady in the Tower by Alison Weir and The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn by Eric Ives. If you've been listening, you already know how much I love Alison Weir's work, and this one is no different. This book chronicles Anne Boleyn's fall from grace and her execution. The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn by Eric Ives is also considered the definitive biography of her life. There's one by David Starkey as well, but from what I've read, it has a lot of issues, and if you're serious about learning every single detail of Anne's life, stick with the Eric Ives book. Another interesting book I found in the nonfic category was The Creation of Anne Boleyn, A New Look at England's Most Notorious Queen by Susan Bordeaux. So this one was interesting because the first few chapters gave you the note version of her life, and the rest of it was more talking about how history views Anne Boleyn depending on what decade you're in. It really dives into how one person can have so many different faces and mean different things to different people, which I found very interesting. I will warn you, however, that it reads less like a book and more like a collection of essays written for the internet. One thing that was strange to me was she kind of aggressively went after other historians in the book, which again, for the internet is fine. That's a think piece. For a book, I don't know. I felt like it dated the work and just seemed strange overall. I saw some other reviews that said the same, but I still like the book. In terms of podcasts you can listen to, There's, of course, lots of Anne Boleyn episodes on all the major history podcasts, but one I discovered that is loads of fun is a podcast called Queens. So this one serves up your history with a cocktail. The hosts literally drink cocktails and then discuss a famous queen from history. Anne Boleyn has a three-part series, and I found it delightful and funny, and I mean as funny as the telling of a tragic story can be. The hosts are hilarious. It's kind of like a podcast version of Drunk History. There is swearing, so if that's something that bothers you, it won't be for you. But I really enjoyed this podcast. And honestly, I'm mad I didn't think of the idea first. And I would definitely love to have a cocktail with those two. There are also a shocking number of podcasts with episodes about Anne Boleyn ghost sightings. Now, me being 100% pro-ghost story, I was all over that but none of them I found to be that good. The one that was all right, and I actually want to check out other episodes, was Malicious Mamas. That episode was called The Ghost of Anne Boleyn, and I'm just reading from their description here, but this is a podcast dedicated to an all-female perspective on lore and legends. So I'm interested in checking out more of those episodes. Next, fiction. There are two novels I found that are written from Anne's point of view. I love this genre of historical fiction because I like actually getting inside people's heads. The first one I actually read a year or two ago, and it was Surprise, Surprise by Alison Weir from her Six Wives of Henry VIII series. It's called Anne Boleyn, A King's Obsession. And my dear listeners, I loved that book. This was the first time that Anne was fleshed out as an actual person for me and a feminist one at that as opposed to literally every TV and movie depiction where she's just a secondary character. I highly recommend, and I actually wrote a full review of it last year, which I will also link to. I think I forgot to mention that, but I like to, 
everything that I talk about on here, you can um, find it all in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app. Or if you can't find it through there, you can always go to my website, which is immortalperfumes.com backslash historical. The second book I found is called The Secret Diary of Anne Boleyn. Oh, dear Lord, I loved this novel. It seems to be a trend to have books written as diaries of historical figures, as you may recall from the Charlotte Bronte episode. If not, go check that episode. But what set this book apart was that the book started with Elizabeth I right after her coronation. Elizabeth is given the diary of her mother, Anne Boleyn, and they alternate between Anne's diary and what's going on in Elizabeth's life as a new monarch. I loved the maternal connection. I loved Anne's voice. It's just overall very well done. In the Alice and Weir novel, Anne is basically 100% the hero and a source of sympathy. In this novel, she mostly is, but you also get her ugly side. So I thought it was pretty balanced. There's a bunch of titles that use Anne Boleyn as a jumping off point, and I didn't have time to get to them all. I just started each of these, but they were interesting enough that I might pick them back up later. The French Executioner and its sequel, The Curse of Anne Boleyn, center on Anne's executioner and a promise he made to her. Sudden Death is this crazy kind of experimental novel that has all these historical figures from different time periods playing tennis with a tennis ball made from Anne Boleyn's hair. I will warn you, I liked the idea of this, but I couldn't get past the first few chapters because I got bored, but I really want to know what happens, so you should read it and tell me. All right, let's end on film and TV. Because I could not get into the other Boleyn Girl novel, I decided to watch the movie, and it was so beyond historically inaccurate that I was irritated for the first half, and then the second half, I was just so stressed out by the story, I just, I really didn't like it. It's got a ton of famous people that I was surprised by, though. Like, I knew about Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman, but seeing Benedict Cumberbatch and Eddie Redmayne show up was really strange since this was like 2008, long before they were, you know, serious movie stars. Okay, then we have The Tudors. Also, lots of historical inaccuracy, but the melodrama and hotness between Jonathan Rhys-Meyers and Natalie Dormer is so strong that I honestly don't care. The Tudors will always hold court over my heart. As far as I'm concerned, Natalie Dormer is Anne Boleyn because she embodies her spirit in every sense. So if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? At least watch the end of season one and then all of season two so that you get maximum Anne. For all you diehard Anne fans, I fell down the rabbit hole of Anne swag. I found this really amazing illustration of Anne and it's available on sweatshirts and tank tops. So I'll link to that too, because you know, I bought that when I found it. There's also lots of vendors on Etsy who make Anne Boleyn's famous bee pearl drop necklace. And I'll link to a few of those because I know that you guys are ride or die for Anne. So you need to have all the things. I'll also give a little plug for my Anne Boleyn perfume. I need to find this book, but Many years ago, I read this account of Anne Boleyn bathing in a bath of champagne and violets. I'm guessing that's not true, but it sounded like something she would do. So I made a perfume based on her with notes of champagne and violets. I love it. All right. That was this month's episode of Storical. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have time or are so inclined, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as that helps more people discover the show. The feedback has also been really great, so I know what subjects to cover in the future. Please join me next month as we dive into the surreal life of a Mexican artist and revolutionary whose self-portraits and flower crowns are the stuff of legends.